and greeting people! I am the father. What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up! Damn you all to hell! Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special on Midsommar. Is that how we've decided to pronounce it, guys? Midsommar in our <laughs> faux Scandinavian way? I, th- I think we've decided to pronounce it that way once. <laughs> it's <laughs> so, the only way. Midsommar. So joining me in the Slate studio to talk about Midsommar are Samuel Adams, Slate's culture writer. Hi, Sam. Hello. And, uh, and Daniel Schrader, what do we call you? Podcast producer? Yeah, I'm a podcast producer. I uh, produce The Gist and Outward. Um, yeah, that's that's me. And formerly production assistant for our own beloved Slate Culture Gap And number one Midsummer fan. That's oh, right. Yes. Yes, we should mention also that this is an off week for spoilers. Normally there would not be a spoiler special this week, but because of audience demand and Daniel Schrader demand <laughs> and various people writing in uh, to say, why are we not spoiling this very spoilable movie? We're now going to be doing it, even though it opened a couple weeks ago. I just have to ask, did this movie make you feel held? <laughs> Oh, no. Wait, you're stealing my thunder. That's my gambit sorry, at the sorry. beginning of each spoiler <laughs> special. I already know your answer, but I'm going to go around just so that we know as we get into spoiling what everyone's general affect is. So you are completely pro and heavily identified and essentially twirling in a Swedish field oh, yes. in an embroidered I'm, linen shirt right now. Send me to my Atastupa, like right now. <laughs> Please, let me jump off a cliff. And Sam, I read your review, but I, I, and I'm going to read you a couple lines from it later that I think are somewhat ambiguous. I still am not totally sure if you're a pro or a con on Midsummer. It seems like you're a reserved pro. I, I think that's right. I mean, sometimes you write a review to figure out how you feel. Then it's sort of an ongoing process for this. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think I am possibly more pro the movie as a gesture than as a, an emotional experience. But I deeply appreciate the gesture. Yeah. All right. All right. I can. I guess I can get with that. I mean, I will say that I think this movie has had a similar half-life in my mind as Hereditary, Ari Aster's debut feature from last year, in that during the watching of it, I was fascinated and confused and trying to figure out what was going on and kind of disappointed in the ending, but weighing it all. And then it started to sour in my mind pretty quickly afterwards. Like, I started to be able to almost make fun of it within days. And I think if the movie had really scared me or moved me or done anything to me on a deep level, that wouldn't have been so possible. I mean, I think I've had something of the opposite experience with like with this movie, at least. Um, Hereditary, you know, watch I saw like the, you know, world premiere at, at Sundance and it was clearly like going to be a thing, but I was also like skeptical of it. And the more I thought of it, the more it just like didn't hang together. Like it just felt like a lot of stuff kind of thrown at a wall, but it really had... I mean, that is a movie that like announces its theme in the title and then I think doesn't really stick to it. Midsummer is one that I'd, like the more I've thought about it, the the more I feel like it actually does work very kind of effectively to its theme. And that has made thinking about it has made it richer for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe I should see it again. The thing is that I have no real desire to see it again because of the extreme <laughs> gore, which we'll also problem, get yeah. into. I, I, I appreciated the extreme gore. I've already seen it twice. I'm planning on seeing it again. It's it's I loved Hereditary, though. So maybe I'm just a blind Ari Aster stan. I've had I've had some people ask me like, oh, you know, I'm thinking about seeing Midsummer, but I'm not sure. You know, I, I'm not like a, I can't really handle gore. And I'm just like, no. <laughs> don't see it. See, <laughs> although it's a strange combination of extremely gory, but not that scary. Well, it's very Wouldn't clinical. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, there's you see a lot of splayed open bodies. Someone compared the shots of, of smashed skulls to Francis Bacon paintings. But you don't really but, see it. But like, you don't happening. see right, and they are the result. We'll get to what they're the result of, but they're not necessarily the result of you know Hitchcock style, <laughs> you know meanies stalking you. There's not suspense in that way in right. this movie. In fact, there's too little suspense, in my opinion. Well, I I, I appreciate the lack of suspense. I think that's part of the magic of the movie, which we will definitely get into. But I also, uh, for the gore, I'm not a gore boy. I tend to hate it. It like makes me uncomfortable. But for some reason in this movie, I, I think there are reasons that when we get to where the gore happens, I can kind of explain why I think uh, it's so effective for me. But I appreciated the gore and kind of was weirdly elated to look <laughs> at it and see it happen. And the second time watching it, I was I found myself looking forward to it, even though I knew it was going to be so graphic and gross. It was 
there was this weird elation I felt. So mm. Yeah, you're playing right into Ari's hands. I really am. All right, so let's start. We actually don't have to spoil for long to get to the gore because this movie starts off, as did Hereditary, actually, with a with a big, violent splash. So does anybody want to want to hit it from the beginning? <laughs> the very first thing we do is we meet Danny, the main character played by Florence Pugh, and she's on the phone with her boyfriend. Correct? It's yeah. snowing outside. It's the winter. Yeah, I mean, if I'm remembering correctly, I mean, the first thing we see in the movie is like it's the phone ringing, and it's this series of kind of static, like cut-ins toward this house, and we find out that you know Danny Arter, the main character played by Florence Pugh, is trying to call her parents. Seems kind of panicked about it, but we don't really understand why. And then we learn in the space of a couple minutes that her sister is bipolar you know, has some sort of like suicidal ideation and is kind of threatened to kill herself beforehand and has sent this really ominous email saying like, everything is dark here. I'm going, mom and dad are coming too, um, something like that. And she can't get through either by email or phone to her sister or her parents and is freaking out. It turns out shortly that she is correct to be that way. But the first thing she does after trying to call them is she turns to her boyfriend, uh, Christian, played by Jack Rayner for help. And this is where we find out, well, we get the the first hint that he is a really shitty boyfriend, which the movie will elaborate on at great length. Okay, once again, me injecting some editorializing here, but don't we find out that he's shitty way too early in the movie so that there is no trajectory there whatsoever? I mean, I think you could say the same thing about all the grad student guys, which we'll get to, but especially with Jack, if there were a little bit more of a trajectory of, of learning as she learns that he's horrible... Again, I would I would care more, but it's so signposted from scene one. I I think to at least to me, I, yes, it is definitely very telegraphed from the beginning that like he is a bad dude. We're supposed to like not root for him, but I think that kind of gets to the idea of this being a breakup movie, and that's uh, what, how I view it, and I think how Ari Aster has said he's viewed it. But when you're in a relationship that isn't a good relationship that needs to end, you you know that it needs to end before you're ending things, and so like. For all that she needs this emotional support from him, I also think that she is aware that he's maybe not a good guy, but she is so desperate for a community, for a to feel held, to feel like someone is there for her, that she has any family now, that she's willing to look past that awful trash bagness that is him <laughs> to find any sort of comfort at all. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, well, not to get too far ahead of ourselves or a lot ahead of ourselves, but I mean, the the kind of the last major dramatic act in the movie is when Danny is pre- presented with this big kind of climactic choice. And because we know that Christian is a shit from the beginning, it is not actually a choice in, in dramatic terms. And so that makes kind of the very last thing that you're supposed to be waiting for in the movie, uh, like a foregone conclusion. So, yes, yeah, so I think that's a little bit of an issue for me. That's one of the things where I feel like the movie might be a little more effective if there was some, if you were watching the relationship fall apart rather than just waiting for her to come to terms with the fact that it's already over. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of an insult to her intelligence as a character that she knows for that long. But of course, you're right, Daniel, that I mean, I'm one to talk like who, which one of us hasn't stayed in a relationship horrifically far too long until we were ready to push someone off a Swedish cliff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, those are the really bad breakups when it's over for a long time, but you haven't actually pulled the trigger. Yet, right, so right. So to speak. So then what is the big tragedy that occurs for the equivalent of the beheading of the little girl in Hereditary in this movie? Right. Yeah. So uh, we find out that Danny's sister has hooked up hoses to the exhaust pipes of the cars in her parents' house and has piped them into her parents' bedroom and duct taped the like floor so that basically their room fills with carbon monoxide. And then she has taped the hose to her own mouth and has committed suicide that way. And you see this very graphic image of it zooming in on her, the sister's face, and she has vomited coming down her shirt and there's just the duct tape mouth and it's an image that actually recurs a couple of times over the course of the movie um you realize that like even though danny hasn't necessarily seen this she has seen it like it's something so vivid to her as to what has happened that it's an image that pops up now and again at these traumatic uh, moments in the movie like when she first starts tripping on drugs at the cliff scene and everything like that right even though it's a moment that's initially seen just by an objective camera with right. the, the cops discovering the bodies but that happens very early I mean yeah, so that the, you even say it in your review that it happens right it's barely a spoiler because it happens in the first few minutes right and that's yeah that's one of the things where I sort of like if it's 
the very first thing that happens in the movie. Like, I, I don't think it counts as a spoiler to say that. But yes, so the, the movie announces itself right at the beginning as a movie about trauma and grief. I mean, it's, it's you know, five minutes in and Danny is like curled up in Christian's lap on her couch, just sobbing, saying no, no, no. Yeah, with these like animalistic wails that I was so impressed that she could pull forth as an actress. It, it felt like there were just sounds coming out of her wailing that I like... It hurt just to listen to almost. Yeah, Florence Pugh is great. I mean, she is the Tony Collette of this movie. And that scene mm-hmm. has an exact equivalent in Hereditary as well. I mean, this is kind of me in a way maybe dissing Ari for making the same movie with like different costumes. But, you know, he has this figure of a woman who's kind of in this place of grief that nobody else can reach and needs to do something extreme Right, needs to search out something extreme in order to assuage that grief. So the extreme thing that she then proceeds to do is to tag along on this trip to Sweden, to rural Sweden, that her boyfriend has secretly planned to take without her. It seems like as part of a beginning gambit of, of breaking up with her, right? He was yeah. going to go with just his three grad student buddies. And I think one of the funniest moments of the movie, for me at least, is when he's telling his friends, like, Danny's on her way up and I invited her to Sweden. She's not coming. Like, she's definitely not coming. But I invited her because, like, you know, of course I invited her. And I mean, yeah, she might be coming, but, like, she's definitely not coming. And it's just so And just so you know, this is your idea and you all know about this. Exactly. And then (laughs) as soon as he says that, she's there at the door. And so they don't even get to respond. And it's just hilarious in the way that he doesn't know how to manage his relationship with her. And, and I mean, there's a perfectly dysfunctional kind of end of life relationship conversation that she has with Christian where he's like, well, I said I was thinking about going to Sweden, you know, and and basically he's trying to pretend that he told her that he's going to Sweden for a month in like two weeks. And he absolutely didn't. And she knows that he didn't. And he's insisting that he did and basically kind of gaslighting her. And, and she flips is, it on her. So he, she ends up apologizing to him for like even confronting him about the like going to Sweden. And that's when you're just sitting there like, please, please break up like right now. <laughs> but they don't. And that's but that's what makes the last scene feel so long and coming, I may also say. Yeah. The scene where the four grad students and we should just say who they all are because they're all going to go to Sweden and have various strange things happen to them. Um, I don't uh, I'm not going to know all the character names, but so, Will Poulter, right? William Jackson Harper. Mm-hmm. And who's the Swedish actor? who plays Wilhelm Pelle? Blomgren. And Wilhelm Pelle. Blomgren is Pelle, who's the Swede who invites them in the first place. There's a scene where they sit around with Christian and essentially sort of like rub their hands together in evil glee about what a bachelor trip they're going to have. And I would just posit that that's another scene where it just turns all of those guys into just undifferentiated assholes so that I'm not so interested in their individual journeys anymore. I didn't necessarily see it as like all four of them gleefully doing that. I think that Pele was kind of playing along because he knew what he was really doing. And I clearly um, the uh, Will Poulter character, whose name in the movie is Mark, is there as just like this horn dog ready to just like fuck any Swedish woman that comes along. And William Jackson Harper, who's who plays Josh, is there as just like a almost like a academic voyeur. That's really why he's going. And so it really makes clear all of their reasons for going. I don't think that they're necessarily all just like, oh, we're going to go fuck chicks. But that's... But Will Poulter is definitely there. Like, it's not even... I guess he's technically an anthropology student, but he's not even, like, pretending that he's working on this. He's just like, we're going to go and nail some Swedish chicks. And, like, when he finds out that, you know, that they're not able to, like, detour through Stockholm's red light district on the way to this remote village, he's, like, quite upset. (laughs) So on the way to the village, actually one of my favorite shots in the movie occurs on (gasps) the way to the village. The upside-down car, right? There's this crazy, I don't know how it's accomplished, some sort of 360-degree shot that turns their car driving down a rural highway upside down. I assume it's a drone at this point. I guess I always assume those shots are drones now. Yeah, I guess it starts up from really high like a drone shot would. But anyway, the way it it slowly achieves that turnaround is great and actually does something that I think some of the middle of the movie fails to do, which is, you know, give you that sense of unsettled upside-downness, like now we're going to to someplace that's really different and really weird. And how is it really weird when Mm -hmm. they get to the Horga, that's the name of the commune, of the, right? Yes. The Horgas? It's like Horgas Land is the banner that they drive under and as the camera slowly flips up. And that's when we first meet the uh, other members of the community. We meet some of the young members. Uh, we meet Pele's brother and the like British friends that Pele's brother met and brought along on this trip. And they all decide, you know what? Let's take some mushrooms. That's, I think, where the 
fucked upness starts. <laughs> Before they've even just like put their duffel bags down in their hut or anything. They're mm-hmm. drinking mushroom tea. I mean, even if you hadn't just lost your entire family in a horrible murder-suicide, that might not be the wisest choice. I mean, what do you think I'm and, drinking right now? <laughs> and, the, and the movie also makes clear, and this is a sort of a hobby horse of mine when movies don't do it, but the movie makes clear not only that Danny is on, who's a psychology student, we should mention, but not only that she's on meds, but it shows you like that she is specifically on Ativan, which is mm-hmm. used for a number of things, but anti-anxiety is one of them. But it sort of, it bugs me always when movies, it's like when somebody goes into a bar and orders a beer, when a character's kind of just on like pills. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, it's just, that tells you something. It's an opportunity to tell you something about the character that's missed when you when just do it generically. When is that established? I saw, I saw that in other places and I must have blinked for it's, a minute when um, she took her out of it. When him. she's talking on the phone with her girlfriend who is basically like, your boyfriend's trash, leave him. He's a bad guy. He wouldn't be treating you this way if he were actually a supportive boyfriend. She's like talking to her and goes to her, the bathroom of her studio and like opens the pill bottle. And it says Ativan on it. But it's like a very, it's a one moment thing. So if you miss that, you missed it. Right. Unless you're like, it's a thing that you are weirdly obsessed with. Like me, you might not notice. Um, yeah, I didn't notice till the second time I saw it. But it is, but it's clearly like whatever is, is probably not something that you're supposed to mix with psychedelic mushrooms. What do you guys think it means that she sees on two different occasions? Once when she's on drugs and I think maybe another time when she's not, so that she sees grass growing through her feet. Is that something oh, she's about on like drugs both times? Oh, she is because the second time she sees it is when they're doing the, the maple um, dance. Maple dance, yeah, yeah. And they'd all had the right. dandelion drug wine, the special, right. the special water. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you think the idea there is basically just supposed to be that she is becoming one with the land and the earth and the place where she is, or is it like she's dead and the grass is growing up through her or something? It's a great eerie image. It is a great eerie image that I'm. Th- that's one of those things. I mean, so much of this movie, I think you can really read and very like kind of firm allegorical terms. That's one that I I feel like is, I, I might wish there's more of this in the movie. That one I think is, is resists parsing a little yeah, bit, you're right. which I it's like. It's more open-ended. And maybe that's why I'm I'm drawn to it because I think there is a lot of um, mallet to the head kind of imagery mm-hmm. as it were. I mean, it is her being kind of literally rooted in the ground, which is the idea that eventually the movie is going to finish up with. Like it ends up being, it is a, a breakup movie. Like Ari Aster said, like that's where the inspiration came from. He's kind of sees himself as Danny Arter, Ari Aster, not hard to um, mm. see the similarity between those two names, but it ends up as a referendum on kind of grief and society and being like, are you, do you, like if you lose your family, if you lose your boyfriend, then you're kind of alone in the world. But if you belong to this, the Harga, we learn is kind of a communal society where obviously people are born from mothers and fathers. Biology still works the same way, but they're not raised by them. They're kind of raised by the, the village as a whole. And that way they're not susceptible to loss and grief in the same way. And that eventually becomes like a very appealing idea for Danny. Right. Although Pele, and we didn't mention this, but he does say to her in that early scene when they discover that she's coming to Sweden and everyone else is being a jerk about it, he does say something to her about, I understand your grief because my parents died in a fire. Meep, 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 meep. Pay well, he says, yeah, he says my parents, my parents burned up in a fire and he says it exactly that way twice, which... I don't quite know how to, I mean, we mentioned, I mean, the movie ends with a literal immolation, and I don't know if we're supposed to draw a connection between those, but it's such a slightly off way of saying it. It's just one of those lines that, like, really stuck in my head oh, for I some reason. Oh, I completely made that. I, yeah. I mean, after after the fire started, it was sort of, that flashed right back into my mind, especially because what happened to his, to his brother at the end, right. right? I mean, in a way, he is an actual parallel to Danny, both parents and a sibling, mm-hmm. you know, gone in an act of violence. I'm not entirely sure how you make that timing work if they, this is something they only do, like, every 18 years, but I, somehow. It's something they, they only do every 90 years, uh, but I I think at least... Yeah, then how could he... Oh, well. The, yeah. way, that, the way that I've thought about this, and I've definitely thought about this though i do one of the things i appreciate the most about this movie is that it is very minimal on lore it it doesn't like get bogged <laughs> world down. building yeah well it, to me like it doesn't get bogged down in the details of like who are the like gods in this world and what are the like like let's analyze the scripture and stuff it that really meant to me that we that's not something we had to waste our time on trying to like solve or figure out he didn't want to it's this isn't a movie that's like a puzzle box and so 
to me, I've just assumed that like there is some sort of self-immolation every year type of sacrifice thing to keep the numbers of the population low and sacrifice to the gods. But then going out and recruiting the outside people and sacrificing all nine is something that I assume it happens only every 90 years. But that's at least how I've thought about it. Yeah, they don't even really explain like Pella has this whole speech where he says like, oh, well, we believe that life happens in kind of 18 year increments. So from like zero to 18, you're a child from 18 to 36, which is where he is. That's like your pilgrimage. You go out and, you know, into the world and maybe, you know, lure some unsuspecting victims back to the village <laughs> uh, if you feel like it. From 36 to 52 is when you're a worker. And then from 54 to 72 is when you're kind of a village elder. Uh, and then I think Danny asked, like, oh, so what happens when you get to 72? And Pella does what seems to be this kind of joking, like, draw his finger across his throat, like, stick his tongue out the side and roll his eyes upwards thing. And you're like, oh, what a funny joke. And that it turns out uh, he's actually being quite literal. Which gets us to the next big plot beat, the Atistupa, if I'm saying that right. I, it, it, this is a made up ritual, but no. I guess well, no, uh, the, it's the based on some up. old Swedish folklore. Right. But yeah, the, that is like an actual thing. Uh, it's not necessarily like a ritualistic holy thing, but it is a uh, the idea that old people would throw themselves off of cliffs to relieve the family of their obligation to them. Senicide. Yeah. So the night before, in the beautiful barn that has all these wonderful paintings on it that kind of foretell what is maybe to come, Josh, uh, William Jackson Harper's character, asks, so what's happening tomorrow? And Pele says, Anatastupa. And nobody knows what that is except for William Jackson Harper because he is an anthropology student studying this kind of stuff. And he's like, wait, really? a real one? And Pele's just like, I don't know. And then... Danny and Jack Rayner's character, Christian, are like, what is that? What is that? And nobody will tell them. So we don't, so They're just like, wait and see. Exactly. Which is kind of the whole movie is like, a, something's going to happen. Just wait and see. And so we always know bad things are going to happen. So we go to this beautiful banquet laid out on a table that's kind of shaped in like a runic formation. And these two old, uh, this old man and old woman come forward in these like blue garbs and sit down and have this meal with everyone and it's clear that they are some sort of like village elder and they then get carted off to the cliff and everyone has to walk to the cliff to see what's going to happen and so they get to the cliff and the two old people are getting carted up there and have their hands cut and like run their hands of blood on these like runes up at the top and then get ready to jump off the cliff. And there's this one moment to me that really felt like it made us complicit in the watching of this, which is when all of the villagers get to the cliff, there's a shot that kind of pans back and there's one villager who's kind of facing the camera while everyone else is facing away and his hand is kind of open welcoming us and basically looking directly at the camera, at least it seemed to me, kind of implying that we are there as well. We are a part of this community witnessing this ritual. So as the old people go off the cliff one by one, what's happening in the crowd bit by bit? Like as the, the newcomers realize what's happening and also how do the, the Swedish commune members themselves react to what's going on? Well, so as they are, as the first person gets ready to jump off the cliff, everyone is kind of still, no one really knows what's happening. But then all of a sudden, Danny realizes you see her gasp and grab Christian's arm. And then all of a sudden, the woman jumps and her face smashes on the rock and it bounces back. You see all of the gore of her face smashed. For a fetishistically long time, exactly. I mean. And it is, I mean, it is, this is a rock that's, you know, sort of an oblong rock roughly the shape of a human body with this one, you know, roughly head-sized protrusion. And it just seems so indicative of, like, the kind of filmmaker that Ari Aster is, that she just perfectly nails it. Like, if she were, like, you know, a cartoon person, like, falling, just plummeting straight down, she could not have aimed any better. Like, her head perfectly hits the part that is your head is supposed to go splat on. But the old guy doesn't stick the landing. <laughs> no, he literally does not. Oh, Yes. Yeah. And it has to be put out of his misery by a large mallet that, that is then brought out by another elder. And this part of the movie, I have to admit, like, there was a part of me that resented Ari Aster for just, like, grinding our faces in it, as it were. You know, I mean, he really did not skimp on long shots of these busted open faces. And it was the only part of the movie I covered my eyes. And it wasn't real fear in a way. It was just it was just resentment. Like, I don't want to go home with that image in my head. 
I think that's a very like normal, like sensible reaction. And people who are like, well, I'm not really, you know, comfortable with gore. Like, I don't like looking at that stuff. I'm my my response is always like, good. Like, you're probably a better adjusted and probably just <laughs> more better person than I am. But I mean, it it does. You know, the movie is very much kind of from Danny's POV, like in her psyche. And, and to the extent that like there's actually a shot of after these two bodies are lying at the bottom of the cliff, there is then a shot of her sister and her parents' bodies like lying on the ground in the same uh, positions that we saw them dead before. So it's it's her, you know, in a way she has been kind of in shock, you know, up until that point. And this is her moving into the kind of, I guess, the acceptance stage of like the Kubler-Ross. Which is uh, certainly modeled by the old people, right? I mean, I guess another yeah. thing that makes this scene not exactly scary, more sort of uh, upsetting than it is scary, is that they're not dying against their will. Right. I, I loved this scene in a way that I don't think either of you necessarily did. Because to me, this, I... I was thrilled to watch the gore, but not in like a voyeuristic, ooh, let me see these people die kind of way, but more in the way that it seemed that the villagers, that the community was experiencing these deaths, which uh, in the context of the villagers, this is a this is a spiritual moment. This is a meaningful thing for them. And it's expressed by the leader of the village clearly like running after the British couple who is very upset having to watch this and are like yelling, screaming like, oh my God, this is terrible. How are you letting them do this? Stop, don't jump, no. And she explains to them that this is this is one of their traditions. It has meaning to them in a religious sense. And so to watch these individuals who have chosen to give their lives for the improvement of the community is in a way honoring them. And so by enduring the graphic nature of their death, you are giving their deaths meaning. And that's kind of telegraphed, I think, by the breathing. That is one of my favorite recurrences in the movie of them screaming and breathing and writhing in pain in the way that the man who has missed the cliff and is still alive and they have to put out his misery, when he starts screaming in agony, the rest of the community starts screaming with him and sharing his grief. And that's something that I think, as the movie plays out, Danny realizes she needs. And there's a moment when that happens later that it, to me, it was like an emotionally moving experience to watch this. And I felt like I was a part of something. I mean, I think that's more resonant probably in a second viewing because, I mean, the, the, the movie kind of makes that explicit later when there's a scene where Danny kind of starts wailing on her own as she did at the beginning and the women of the village kind of, the young women of the village kind of gather around her and start, at first it almost seems like kind of mimicking or mocking her and then you realize that it is sort of this weird kind of communal blob that is taking on this suffering. Yeah, that that scene is, is incredible with the women all kind of moaning in unison. Just a question about why that happens. Isn't that isn't that because she's just discovered the the sex barn yes, <laughs> situation? Yes. Okay, we'll get to the sex barn later on. <laughs> so this is different but, grief. But that yeah. question of those women mourning with her and also the phone conversation she has with her friend back in the U.S. A couple different times in this movie, I thought, you know, does this movie pass the Bechdel test at all? I mean, I, there aren't really any women characters in it who, except Danny, who serve any purpose except general representation of Swedish sexy, creepy cultiness, right? Like, she doesn't really connect with any other woman on the trip. I, I, I think she connects very strongly with the women as she's dancing. And you can tell that, at least to me, that she really feels connected to them. But, like, there's even a moment when she starts speaking in Swedish with them. And she has just kind of, like, almost immersed herself in this, like, world of dance and has kind of just become one of them in a way that... She may not have a connection to any one of them specifically, but she has a connection to them as a whole. I mean, she is kind of hallucinating at that point, but she definitely like imagines that she has all of a sudden learned Swedish and can speak it to them. And I think it's uh, like, I don't, I don't know if it technically passes the Bechdel or not, but I mean, it, it is it might show like one of the limitations of it because so much in this movie happens without dialogue. Like when I go back and watch it a second mm-hmm. time, like one thing I'm curious of is I think... Danny might not say anything for maybe like the last 20 minutes of the movie. Like she doesn't have a line, even when she makes that kind of big decision that I was talking about earlier. Like it happens off screen, you know, so she has this kind of pre-verbal wailing with these women. But, I, you know, and I think there's maybe a line before that when she's like, what the fuck's going on in that barn? But 
like she has no dialogue for probably 10, 15 minutes at the end of the movie. And I think that's a very deliberate move on the mm. film's part. And in one of the many places where the, the movie really depends on Florence Pugh's performance, you know, that her character, I think, is richer than it would be on the page because of what she brings to it. I mean, I wanted to go back to what you were saying, Daniel, about how she's reacting to that ceremony and saying like, oh, this is their, you know, this is their tradition. One of my favorite lines in the movie, and I think it's, it's Christian who says it, but is like, listen, bro, it's cultural. You know, with these people are like, what's going on here? Like, this is really, and they're like, it's cultural. And just that kind of like blanket acceptance without understanding is so much to do with the particular ugliness of these particular Americans. They certainly don't seem like anthropology grad students at all, right? I mean, they have no more kind of cultural sensitivity or sense that, you know, they might be strangers who are disrupting a different place than, you know, your crassest American tourist. Well, and I loved the way that Pele kept giving um, Josh the runaround of like, oh, well, sure, you can take pictures, but just very discreetly. Um, Oh, well, let me talk to the village elders about whether or not you can even document any of this. Kind of like just stringing him along long enough until we can kill him off as like, a, I'm I'm not going to send up any red flags to you, Josh, but um, I'm going to uh, also not just like say, of course, sure, please, or definitely not, because it doesn't matter. You're going to die. Right. And maybe the concern, I mean, I, I think we see William Jackson Harper's character like on his computer a lot. I mean, I think it's established that they don't have, all horror movies have to establish that people don't have internet service at this point as like a requirement for the genre. So I guess it's not clear if he has Wi-Fi out there or not. <laughs> I would assume He's getting not. more work done in his thesis. But they don't want Wi-Fi. him like going yeah. on a hike and like, you know, uploading pictures to the cloud before they've managed to like, crush his skull with a hammer. <laughs> Right. But so, I mean, I think I was really touched, Daniel, by your description of the Atasupa scene and how you found it so moving and evocative of this community. But I mean, I, th- I think this movie sort of wants to have it both ways, right? Because it wants us to understand why Danny would be drawn to this community that's something larger than her that's going to make her feel held, et cetera. But it also wants to be an old fashioned cabin in the woods. Here's a bunch of young people. Let's slaughter them one by one movie, which it then proceeds to accomplish in the next middle section. Right. As we all knew was happening from the moment they decide to go there in the first place. And I can't remember what order they get taken out in, but I think Mark is the first to, to disappear. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the horn dog. Well, the guy. first to disappear are the British. Um, right. couple and then Mark go- but gets. we believe that the British couple at first have gotten away right do you believe that I never believed that for a second as soon as as soon as we found out that the guy Simon left his girlfriend well his fiance to go to the train station and that she would just catch up later I was like oh they killed him I always knew that they were going to die but I mean going into this movie it's that's like the folk horror genre, I feel, is just like knowing that, oh, everything's everything bad is going to happen. That's what's that's what this is. So I know what I signed up for. I'm I'm interested to see how they do it. Not is the folk horror genre, by the way, anything except the Wicker Man. <laughs> like, what is this? What is this preceding does, there's, group of movies Blair that are Witch like count? the Wicker yeah. Man? Well, I guess maybe. Yeah. There, Deliverance. There's, there's like a specific set of three movies that are thought of as like the folk horror trilogy that came out around the same time. Um, I can pull up the names if you want, but it's The Wicker Man and then uh, Witchfinder General, The Blood of Satan's Claw, and The Wicker Man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Those other two have not had near the afterlife in pop culture that no, The Wicker Man No, but I has. am seeking them out immediately. But, yeah, I mean, like Hammer Horror people are very big on like Witchfinder General. I've just never been one of them. Oh, really? Yeah. So yeah, that's that's the folk horror genre as a whole. So I don't think we need to go through what happens to each and every one of these people. I think we just need to know that they disappear one by one. We usually don't know exactly how or what happened yeah, to them. In Mark the case get- of Josh, you do actually see him get killed right? because yeah. he's taking a picture of the, the runic The Holy Scripture. Text. And that's something we haven't talked about because that's a weird thing. How like it's, it's one of those weird moments where you get like just a flash of the like larger culture of these people where you find out that they're oracles are specifically chosen by inbreeding and that like the community manages who mates with whom and so they determine when a new oracle who is a who is not clouded by our normal way of thinking uh is born and so like that's a whole weird thing that we never even understand or get to know and like so it's it's also weird because that character, the uh, Oracle, is laying there watching the orgy scene and everything anyway. Um, but yeah, that's he just gets the mallet on the head or something 
in that scene. And Mark gets pulled off by a woman who's been kind of like giving him eyes the whole time. And then we just have Christian and Danny. That's who's left. Yeah, we, and that seems to happen, at least psychologically to me, it seems it happened pretty early in the movie, right? Like everyone is discarded and Christian and Danny are left there alone. Mm-hmm. So I think the next plot points that we need to hit after Christian and Danny have been isolated with the creepy Swedish cultists is uh, the Maypole dance, probably, right? Which is, is this Maypole dance the moment when she thinks she can speak Swedish because yeah. she's on yes. mushroom tea or whatever it is? Mm-hmm. And spinning around in circles. Once more. And, yeah. Yeah. and it's the first time she's wearing a dress like yours today where it's the lovely like white linen. With the embroidery, with the embroidery. right? embroidery. It's the first time she's I will say that. this movie is so worth it just for the looks. Okay, oh. I've said so many bad things about it, but it's so Instagrammable and I want all of those embroidered linen dresses. Oh, it's the only thing I ever want to wear <laughs> Cop again. Cop that look. Uh-huh. <laughs> And so, yeah, so she gets pulled off to go with the women and then Christian gets taken to speak to the one of the village elders to basically be like, hey, we need new blood. You should have sex with one of our women who has, we haven't even mentioned this, but who has over the course of the movie uh, baked a pie with her pubic hair in it and also served him that and a glass of juice with her menstrual blood in it. Yes. And it's it's so funny like this is a funny moment when you are watching them all like sit at this banquet table eating and Christian's glass is just a little bit redder than everyone else's <laughs> speaking of speaking of getting caught up in the details here like it does wonder to me I mean did, did she save her menstrual blood because if she's got fresh menstrual blood to put in her tea then how is she like having sex with them to get pregnant <laughs> Like the next day, I assume that she saved her menstrual blood, but just just it, just in case the company drops of by. Right? Yeah, <laughs> of course. They, they, all of the all of the um, of age women just have a bottle on their nightstand. It's basic Martha Stewart. Like you should always have a jar of menstrual blood on hand in uh-huh. case company comes over. Exactly. And some pubes to bake into a pie. Yeah, I mean, why not? just hospitality. Uh huh. <laughs> so yeah, that's her seduction, right? Essentially. Yeah, and we see this like. This movie is filled with beautiful folk art, beautiful fake folk art. But we see this wonderful tapestry early in the movie where we see like in panels it play out of like how to seduce a man is by doing these things of like baking something into a pie, putting a rune under their bed, et cetera, et cetera. So. Do you think this movie believes in the supernatural? Quick aside. I mean, there's these moments like where the flowers in the flower crown appear to be breathing or that dish on the table, that gross kind of meaty thing is undulating. Do you think that those are just uh, psychological projections from Danny's mind or is this a world where magical things happen? I think like Hereditary, this is a movie about kind of distrusting your own perceptions or maybe you know learning to trust your perceptions in a different way uh you know hereditary is kind of a movie about not believing that the thing you see has happening is actually happening until it's too late and it's a movie that even like in that kind of famous scene like tony collette you know up on the ceiling like really plays with even your literal perceptions like just your inability to make out an object in the dark and this is a movie that fucks with your mind but also just fucks with your eyes i mean because there are all those shots where you know, you kind of think maybe something is doing that like breathing effect in one corner of the screen, but then you look over there and maybe it stopped and, and maybe it's doing it and you can't quite tell. They don't apply it evenly across the screen. Like it kind of moves in little blobs around all over. So it just um, really makes you distrust your own eyes in addition yeah. to everything else. It's very, it's very much in line with like an actual mushroom trip. Like that's kind of the hallucinations that psilocybin gives you. And so it, I I do think that it's more like we experience the supernatural in this movie through the natural, through the hallucination of the like psychedelic drug. It's not that there is any like magic in the world that they are out here casting spells or like worshiping gods that exist. It's more that that the natural is their route to the supernatural. Mm -hmm. And it certainly is a movie that is, as Annihilation was last year, is obsessed with these organic images melded with non-organic things, you know, mm-hmm. like the grass growing up through her feet. Well, I mean, I guess feet are organic, but, you know, the combination of the, a plant and animal body and those kind of hallucinations are all over this movie as well. Right. Yeah, the hybridization and the, and the sort of connection between humans and nature and humans are and animals. I mean, you, one of the last things we see in this movie is literally a, a, a human being wearing the skin of a dead bear. So it it's kind of 
you know, we are not as far from the primitive and the animal, the pagan and, and kind of pre-Christian understanding of the world as we sometimes like to think that we are. Speaking of wearing skin, we totally <laughs> forgot about how when William Jackson Harper's character gets murdered, he, we see someone wearing Will Poulter's skin. And that's like he like walks in and he's like he thinks it's Will at first. And that's what makes him turn around. And he's like, Will, what are you doing? And then he realizes like, oh, God, this is a person wearing a Will suit. And then he gets struck. And it happened so fast that I myself was saying, wait, was that Will Poulter? Or did they do something to Will Poulter's eyes? Like it wasn't actually until we saw Will Poulter at the very end, kind of scarecrow style, Mm -hmm. um, that I realized that that had been somebody wearing his suit. I still I can be I can be a little slow. I had to have that explained to me uh, afterwards. I loved it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we need to, we need we to get should, to, we need to the sex barn. The well, on. let me talk about the maypole and then the sex barn. Okay, so the maypole um, dance is at first proposed as this sort of they shoot horses, don't they, spinoff, where like the last standing female maypole dancer becomes the may queen. Mm-hmm. But And so I thought what was going to follow would be a they shoot horses style kind of awful torture scene. But in fact, there's something really joyful about that dance around the maypole, even as people are, you know, falling down in exhaustion and, and sort of thwacking each other to, to make each other fall down. And as and right before they do that, they drink the psychedelic tea and you get the uh, breathing that I love so much, which happens just a few times in the movie and you don't really understand what it means, but it means something to them. And it's the... Mm-hmm. And I don't know what that means, but I just like that sound. Ari Aster is good at finding a sound that just sticks with you afterward. Exactly. <laughs> and so the idea, I believe, of the of the May Queen scene is that it's sort of her acculturation, right? Whether it's the imagined Swedish speaking or, you know, just her winning the contest to mm-hmm. her own surprise and being accepted and decorated with all these flowers by them. It's, to me, sort of the moment that she starts to see the possibility, like, I could become one of these people. it's a moment when she's able to completely free herself from the grief she's been feeling in a way that she doesn't, I feel, she never even realized she could free herself from until she just gives herself over to this dancing moment and this community. And she's like, oh, wait, I, I can step out of these emotions. And it's almost like it's like this weird, like sort of cognitive behavioral therapy or something like she just kind of puts her mind aside and loses herself in her body. And then, yeah, hallucinates that she can speak Swedish and then she really kind of belongs in this place. And soon after that, I mean, stops speaking altogether. And that seems to be... um, I don't know actually about sort of Ari Aster's own, you know, history with, you know, like family mental illness or or psychotherapy or whatever. But I mean, both these movies seem to proceed from a pretty profound understanding of that process. And that seems to be something that kind of deeply informs like that scene and where this movie goes, just about the ability of kind of getting past your own, you know, anxiety and, and grief and just finding a way to root yourself in the world in a different way. Which might be more unproblematically empowering to Danny if it didn't also involve joining a murder cult for the rest of your life. Not a cult. I mean, everybody, you know, we all come to it in our own ways. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so, so, but that scene actually bleeds into, as it were, the sex barn scene, right. right? It's during the Maypole ritual that Christian gets lured away by the redheaded seductress, isn't no, it? No, no. So after, so after the Maypole dance, because the redhead is participating in the Maypole dance, this is when Christian is given a glass of the special water. Um, watching the Maypole dance, he just downs it. And then they go to the banquet that Danny gets carried to on the like platform that she's standing on. And they have the banquet and Danny gets led off to go do her May Queen ritual. She gets pulled off in the cart and everything. And that is when Christian gets pulled into the sex barn, which I think sex barn is a little glib because it's clearly the, um, <laughs> it's the place where they keep their holy scriptures. So like, show some respect for the sex barn, please. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I, I mean, please, someone describe the sex barn because it is wild. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, one thing the sex barn contains is something that the very disappointing ending of Hereditary also contained, which is a semicircle of old people. Naked I, and chanting. I have to push back on you because I heard the Culture Gab Fest, and I do not think that Ari Aster thinks that old people are scary. I don't think that that's what this image is supposed to be. Uh, there um, are some slightly younger, you know, at least you know, middle-aged or people in their thirties who do. It's not all like you know, kind of weird, sort of you know, quote unquote creepy, like old women and stuff. They're you know, creepy, creepy middle-aged people. So I just want to stand <laughs> up for not, creepy middle-aged it's people. It's not that I'm saying Ari Aster hates or dreads or fears old people. In fact, I think the Atastupa scene really speaks to a kind of thinking about, you know, age and elderism and what it might be. There's just something inherently comic about these semicircles of chanting nudies, right. and yet he uses them on two different occasions in two movies in a row, his only two movies so far, as sort of 
an exhi- exhibition of the ultimate horror, and I don't know. I mean, there's just something sort of occulty and silly about it that made that. And scene it's a little, hard it's a little like by. off the shelf that yeah. image. Like you see it in, in movies a lot. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's a little bit like ooh, goat horns on an altar. I guess I'm in the occult world now, <laughs> right? Yeah, I, I, I will say, but of course, as we've already been over, I've drunk the special water. I have like sold my soul to this cult already. I really found that scene in some ways moving in its own way of like this is how the community deals with birth and being a part of like being a part of conception and so like that means that the pregnancy and the birth are all they start from a moment of community in a way and that this is all the women's pregnancy it's not just hers and it's how they maintain exogamy basically right exactly. it's bringing in sperm from the outside every yeah. once in a while although they are gambling i mean she has a 20 percent chance of getting pregnant in the best case scenario so they better have some other dudes on tap and this is a community that also sort of deliberately like inbreeds its oracle figures so that you know by the time we've gotten to whatever generation of harga this is i mean the the Oracle figure is kind of hideously deformed. I feel like know. there's also a fetishism in those close-up shots of the Oracle figure who we never learn anything about. I mean, right. I think you could make an Which argument that they're kind of ableist and gross. They're not my favorite part of the movie when we get a shot cut to the distorted face of the Oracle. And that's guy. another, you know, like Ari Aster's thing for like faces and heads is another sort of carryover from hereditary. Like, I mean, it's not, he's not covering his tracks. Um, I don't really think he's trying to, but he's definitely not covering his tracks super well. I will say I was kind of disappointed when watching it both times in the theater to see that scene because to me it is like this. Yes, it is comical because of the way that Christian has the look on his face of like, oh, fuck, what's happening? But I was kind of disappointed because everyone was laughing, right? like just laughing the whole way through that scene. And it just felt like their laughter was for the wrong reasons. It felt like their laughter was a discomfort with what was going on, not laughing at the moments that were actually funny. It was more of a way for the audience to deal with something that they aren't that is so unfamiliar to them. I mean, I do think there is a lot of comedy in this movie. I mean, it is I, I liken it to Force Majeure from a, f- a few years ago, where I, I just find, I think it's a really really like dark obviously there's a lot of horror in it too but i think it's a really dark comedy and there are moments in it where you kind of almost have to laugh um, oh yeah and seeing it again i laughed as so many more times yes and specifically but- in the sex barn scene i think you are supposed to laugh at the moment that the one woman goes and starts like shoving his working rump. his butt yes <laughs> that was comical yes but it is also i mean it does speak to and i, and I think this is like a flaw in the film i mean the extent to which christian has been kind of so dehumanized uh, that I mean he's basically in the last 10 minutes of the movie he is like kind of sexually assaulted and murdered and we don't really care or you have to maybe take a step back and go like oh I guess this is like pretty bad this stuff that is going on now (laughs) but I I feel like a, a stronger movie would have you could make a Christian a bad guy and still have us feel for him like a little bit more um, or still, you know, or make Danny less of an idiot for still believing that there's some potential there as well. And, and I feel like he gets I mean, I guess it's not surprising that this is a movie made by someone who identifies with the Danny figure because Christian is kind of thrown under the bus so hard from the very beginning. Yeah. I mean, and to me, that is, again, just it just cuts into the simple suspense of the movie. You know, like I want to think something during the course of the movie besides over and over again, like, wow, this guy's an asshole. He's a horrible boyfriend. I knew that from the very first moment he came on screen. Yeah. Like when he tries to steal his friend's thesis idea and et cetera, et cetera. Like there's so many times when it's just like, oh, you've made it too clear that we hate this dude and we want him to die. But so while the sex barn is happening, uh, Danny comes back from the ritual of the May Queen and is supposed to go uh, celebrate with all the other May Queens, but hears something coming from the barn, which is another moment of shared sound, which is uh, the redhead is clearly like uh, approaching orgasm and all of the women in the room are kind of screaming and having that like shared experience with her. Danny hears it and walks over and peeks into the keyhole of the building and then just loses it. And that's when she starts screaming and doesn't know how to handle it. And that and the women like have to rush her off to their barn. And that's when we get the breathing of just like we see her so horribly distraught that they all of a sudden just start like <sighs> kind of like breathing with her and get it. And it's interesting because it's kind of a 
it, it's kind of a juxtaposition with the first scene of her screaming while being held in Jack Rayner's silent arms when he's still like wearing his snow coat and everything and she's just screaming there alone. Here, she's screaming with them and so they're able to control her screaming and kind of pull her back from the like brink that she seems to be on. By breathing with her, they're able to slow her breathing and share her pain that she's experiencing at that moment. So it isn't as painful. Okay, so with his work done in the sex barn, uh, Christian goes staggering out and starts to make some horrifying discoveries. Before we get to the to the ending with um with the the May Queen and Danny's choice, um, wh- what does he discover as he's nakedly <laughs> <laughs> staggering through the commune? So one of the things I love about this movie is that it is set basically in a village that seems to be like roughly the size of a football field. Like it seems like you get there and there's a shot of the length of it. It seems like you can see the whole thing. And yet somehow we keep kind of stumbling on buildings that we've never seen before or places that haven't been investigated yet. So Christian stumbling around with his dick flapping in the wind um, stumbles across this one building and he's trying to hide from people. And of course, it's late in the movie. You know that wherever he attempts to hide is going to be worse than the place he just left. <laughs> um, and it, so he stumbles into what seems like a nice little uh, chicken coop. And then uh, pan up and there is the uh, dead remains of a young British traveler um, hanging over it from his flayed uh, shoulder blades. Right. Some the sort guy of... who, who, who purportedly tried to leave. Simon. Yes. Yes. Who, yes. Who, who made the train. He and got in on the train and he just left because he had to go. I may be wrong, but I think he's still alive because it seems like his lungs are still like they have like opened up his back and have like strung his lungs out and they seem to be moving. They do. Still. Yeah. So it's I, not clear if that's just sort of like, you know, it's just kind of seesawing on that yeah. thing or if he's actually. Yes, but it is definitely, you know, it's one of those things where your eyes are maybe playing tricks on you. You can't tell mm-hmm. if there's actually, you know, the screen is breathing or the person is. Um, but anyway, so Christian sees this. He is horrified and then he turns around and there is an old man from the village who like blows a little stuff of like pixie dust in his face and uh, paralyzes him for what turns out to be the remainder of both the movie and his life. Doesn't he also catch a glimpse of of William Jackson Harper's legs sticking out of a yes, garden? Yes, as he's yes. running scene? into, yeah. And right. there's like a rune drawn on the heel of Jackson, of William Jackson Harper's foot like that's just sticking straight out of the ground. And there's I, a whole Easter egg thing that's going to be done probably when this movie hits video of like, as you mentioned, there are... Not just runes like inscribed on things. There are like, you know, ta- banquet tables set up in the shape of runes. There are, you know, runes and pictures and wallpaper and drawings like all through this foreshadowing the movie. And I feel like I, I think it's a, a runic language that they made up. Mm-hmm. But I, I think if you watch the movie and kind of can screenshot all that stuff and, and decode it, I mean, they're going to be Reddit threads showing you exactly how everything in the movie is kind of foreshadowed by all these pictures and runes and everything that are strewn all through it. I mean, even without the runes, it's all freaking foreshadowed as hell. Yeah, you know exactly what's happening. Walk, walking out of the movie, I was just like desperate for the movie to come out on video so that I could start screenshotting things because I just like, I already know what I want my new Twitter background to be and everything. It's just, I love it. I love it so much. Um, <laughs> You're falling I, even like, for the Instagram I want, part I want of the this gift. Movie. Of her walking in the large flower dress, like struggling as the fire burns in front of, like behind her. Anyway, are the girls like picking flowers while they're walking backwards? Walking backwards, yes. yes. So one of my favorite like images was when he gets the dust blown in his face, and the guy who blew the dust closes his eyelids one at a time because he's paralyzed, and then immediately the next shot is the woman who gave him the uh, special water opening his eyelids one at a time. And so you only see one half of her and then you see the other half. And it's just like this really arresting moment for me. And again, sort of playing off the theme of like limited perception and yada, yada, yada. And And she's explaining to him, just so you know, your body is paralyzed. You can't move. You can't speak. But you're here and you're safe and everything's fine. And she kind of makes it clear to us as well as him that like he can still feel things, which is going oh, yes. to be uh, quite important in the moment that comes. Right. So he is wheeled up to the banquet table. And do they have another banquet at this point she no. presides over? This is they're like at the um, kind of the dais that's shaped and painted like a sun. And it's where they have their first like skull at the like beginning of the movie where when they get there and it's kind of like the welcoming moment but this is the leader of the village explaining like well this is the thing we do once every 90 years and we've already had four sacrifices that are of the outsiders we have two people who've already given their lives we have two more volunteers of our community who've given their lives and now it's the may queen's honor to choose either another outsider or um a chosen at random Yes. member of the village. So then they basically do like a bingo call 
where they have this big bowl full of uh, runes, I guess one for each villager, and they kind of, you know, twirl it around and then one rolls out the slot, rolls out of this bingo-like contraption, um, the villagers randomly selected. Torbjorn. Yes, Tor- Torbjorn, of course. Torbjorn and, and Christian. Um, and so it falls to Danny as the May Queen to select the ninth sacrifice from one of these two people. The movie does not show us the moment where she chooses, but the, the next thing we see is Christian uh, paralyzed in a uh, uh, flayed bearskin sitting inside of the little burning shack that they're about to light on fire. So well, and, we, we know what call she made. And the bear moment was actually really nice to me, too, because it, it, it signals more of the like, this is a like spiritual ritualistic thing that they do because the older man in the village is like has the dead bear flayed open and he's teaching the young boys in the village how to properly dress the bear and cut out the intestines and everything but then they just casually pick christian up and put him on the table next to the emptied bear carcass and you're like oh shit i know where this is going and then you see the next shot is him being wheeled in with the bear head on him it's so good so i guess the idea is that that yellow triangular building that that burns down eventually with all the bodies in it and some live people too is only built for this event every 90 years it's just sort of like a temporary burning hut it seems like something like that yeah and who ends up in the hut? <laughs> let's let's go over what happens after she chooses Christian. He gets sewn up in the bear suit and put in the hut. All the bodies of the previously killed people are also brought in, kind of like stuffed like scarecrows, which is mm-hmm. really creepy. Yeah, so the two the two English visitors, the two other graduate students, those are like the four outsiders, plus Christian, then uh, two live volunteers from the villagers and the two old people, or I guess representations of the two yes. old people because they've already been burned. burned up, but there are sort of like, you know, straw effigies of them, maybe seasoned with a little bit of their ashes um, placed in there as well. And uh, and all that stuff just gets carted into the building and who sets it on fire? Three of the villagers set it on fire. And actually another rune moment is uh, the runes that are painted on the wall are actually then mirrored on the floor as well. It's like a, a large rune is kind of etched out in hay. And the whole building is filled with hay. And one of the village elders comes in and gives the two live people who have chosen to give their lives for the community sap of the yew tree which i'm assuming is some sort of like it's supposed to be probably some sort of you know anesthetic or something uh i guess but i mean we find out pretty quickly that it doesn't work because we find out christian is totally paralyzed so we get no reaction from here but we see one of the live volunteers screaming in horrific agony as the flames begin to consume him so it's pretty clear they're still feeling well I, everything uh, we yeah, ordinarily yeah, yeah, feel yeah. in those circumstances honestly i i kind of loved the moment where he starts getting burned alive and doesn't realize how horrible and painful it is but then you see it come over his face of like oh wait did i make a mistake kind of thing right. as like choosing choosing to give yourself to, for this community but then the community starts screaming with him and starts sharing that pain that he is experiencing outside of the building and you see them like basically rending their garments apart just feeling the flames on them as he is inside I mean, I think the ultimate, ultimate thing to spoil in this movie, which in a way is almost like we should start with it because the entire way you feel about the movie depends on it, is the smile, Danny's <sighs> smile at the very end, right. right? She's been pretty catatonic-faced ever since she discovered the sex barn, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah, the combination of like the maple drug and this kind of emotional shock is comp- she's like zonked. She is out of it. She is sitting there when they're ma- when she's you know making this big like May Queen decision. She's sitting in this kind of pyramid of flowers with her head poking out and it looks like I mean this is again like her body returning the earth but she also just looks like she's trapped in it or something she, I well, mean, she's almost like disappeared yeah underneath. yeah yeah and she's clearly standing in it because there's one like one of my favorite images as I, I said just a little bit ago is she's trying to walk in that thing and like not like walk just casually but she's clearly like trying to move or something or break out of it she's struggling and it's just this image of her like dragging it along herself while the building burns and then it shoot it goes back to Christian in the bear costume and then we get the final image when it goes back to her and she's no longer looks distraught or sad she feels happy yeah she slowly smiles and that that close up of her smile is the end of the movie and i think i mean this is i guess one of the movie's big moments of ambiguity it's not the most ambiguous sort of movie here's the moment sam where i'm going to read you a sentence from your review okay. and ask you to explain yourself Ooh. If Hereditary was about being trapped, Midsommar is about the terror of being let loose, the giddy, sickening rush of freefall. You laugh at its audacity, or maybe just to keep from losing your own grip on reality. By the time it's over, you can't wait for night to fall. 
So we hadn't even mentioned the fact that they're, of course, in midsummer in, in Scandinavia, you're in essentially eternal daytime, right? Yes. So this is like the opposite of nighttime horror. But when you say by the end, you can't wait for night to fall, and I'm thinking about that ending, I just want to know, are you happy for Danny at the end? Are you scared for her? Do you have a feeling that she's found belonging or that she's been, been taken over by a zombie cult? Are all these those things somehow true at once? I mean, I've thought about it a lot because one of the things that left me ambivalent about the movie, or you know, one of the things that I'm more ambivalent about is the way the ending left me. I was like, does this actually fit with what? I mean, and what is the movie like? Not to be too pedantic about it, but like, what is the movie saying about grief? And I feel like it is. I've come to understand it by sort of liking it to the end of the movie Brazil, which is basically about this. You know, the main character played by Jonathan Price is sort of, you know, trapped in this torture pit of this totalitarian state. And he goes into what we learn is like this sort of catatonic, like disassociative state where there's this big fantasy of escape that feels like the movie is just slapped on a happy ending. And then it turns out, no, he's actually still there. And the last word is, well, he's gone away from us. And uh, Terry Gilliam, the director of Brazil, has said like he sees that as a, a victory for Sam Lowry because he's kind of found his own place. But it is also he's still trapped in the torture chair. And I kind of feel that way about Danny in this movie. Like she has, I mean, she is happier in, in some way. She is also kind of completely divorced from reality, probably n- never coming back, never going back to, I guess she doesn't have a family or a, a boyfriend and um, who, whichever girlfriend was on the phone with her at the beginning is, is I guess, not going to miss her, but she's not coming back. You know, she has kind of cut her ties, you, you know, whether or not, I mean, she's happier, whether or not that is like a good happy or she's just finally lost her mind, whether she needed her mind in the first place, I guess, is something I think the movie doesn't want to resolve. For yeah. Us. I mean, to me, it feels like a movie wanting things both ways. And I wish I could say, ah, the rich ambiguity of life that it portrays. But the rest, given that the rest of the movie is so low on rich ambiguity, right? I mean, even you who love it, Daniel, agree that it's sort of like... Hammer, hammer, hammer. Here's what's happening. Here's the parallel, the allegory with grief, etc. All the time through, it's been sort of clear what's happening on her emotional level and how that parallels what's happening in the physical world. And only at the end does it become completely wide open as to whether, you know, whether this is essentially some stage of grief resolution or, you know, the complete um, disassociation of the character. I, I totally agree. But I think for me, the reason that it works so well to have such clear signposted mallet to the face uh, <laughs> plotting and story beat is that, and maybe this is just me coming from a like, religious background growing up the son of a minister but it really like reminded me of the ritual of religion and that like a lot of ritual is not and tradition isn't necessarily like it it's always expected it's we we return to the same readings every time we have the same drinking of the like i i grew up christian so like we have the same drinking of the uh, communion glass everything like that and it's not that any of these things are themselves moving or as themselves as like a spiritual act uh transcendent but it's the combination of these things and it's the immersion of yourself in the tradition that allows you this spiritual awakening, that allows you this step past self into community or into the other. And that's kind of how I felt this movie played out, is it really pulled you along as like a ritualistic spiritual experience rather than a narrative story. And so by the end, uh, Danny is experiencing some sort of transcendence that is outside of herself because she gave herself over to the tradition and kind of experience that this community is. Right. But there's a menace to that as well. You would agree, right? I mean, there's a sense that doing that, losing oneself in a community is not necessarily a happy ending. Right. But I I think that there are no happy endings. So why not give yourself over to this one? I feel like I'm doing a lot of like auteurist reading here, but I mean, it definitely like, I mean, these, this Midsommar and Hereditary are both movies about the triumph of either pre or sort of anti-Christian traditions, you know, Satan worship and this kind of, you know, pagan like naturalist cult or whatever we want to want to call it. And, you know, what, what you're talking about is Daniel is really interesting to me because I certainly know people who d- don't even really wouldn't consider themselves believers anymore, but still go to church because of that. The, they find the ritual and the community so 
comfortable and kind of moving in its own right, even if, they, if even if they don't believe in God. You know, and that's maybe some of what, you know, Danny is kind of grabbing onto here. I mean, they have this whole foundational myth, which is kind of laid out about like this kind of you know, dark creature who kind of came out of the woods and stole people. And so they do this thing every 90 years. And it's like, well, that's, you know, the movie clearly doesn't, this isn't the witch. Like the movie doesn't believe that actually happened, you know, and it's so many, I guess, you know, hundreds or thousands of years ago that, that, that who knows, but this whole thing has been built up around it. And that thing, that ritual, that tradition community is, is significant it has meaning in and of itself, even if the thing it is based on isn't um, true. And I feel like that's what Danny is. That's what's what's comforting to her. I, I also think of this as like, come. So one of my other backgrounds is theater. That's what I have my undergrad in. And I think of this, the experience of this movie, at least for me, is more of a theatrical one than it is a cinematic one. In that, at least when I experience theater, I find myself giving myself over to the experience more and not and like immersing myself in the moment of theater because I'm watching like people in real life performing these things as opposed to watching them on a screen and granted yes I was watching this on a screen but like to me the cinematic experience is always one that has a bit more distance to it than the theatrical one and he even says Pele says in the beginning like to Danny I just want to warn you like what we're doing might seem weird or absurd, but just think of it as theater. Think of it as theatrical. Well, and those moments where she's, you know, kind of crying out and surrounded by all these women kind of making these heaving sobs. I mean, it reminds me a lot of like you know, the first chapter of, of Jacques Rivette's Out One or just a lot of those sort of, you know, the living theater, like those kind of, you know, 1960s, like experimental theater traditions where they really mm-hmm. just kind of tried to get away from even – um, not only words, but but narrative, and just have this kind of you know gestalt like running through the room, and it feels like that's it, those very much feel like that kind of you know experiential theater traditions. Yeah, I mean, it's a movie all about having that experience, so it it seems seems natural that the viewer would have that experience. I wish that I had had that experience. <laughs> I really did feel outside of this movie and never almost, was almost never scared by it. At the very most, grossed out, but but not scared. But da- I, I was never Dana, scared either. Dana, it's cultural. and i mean people coming to this movie expecting a classic horror movie are certainly going to be disappointed if they're really looking for jump scares and you know your sort of there's only one monster movie i mean i think some people may take away nothing more complex from the ending than he was a horrible boyfriend good riddance and that's what the smile means and you know on its own level that's fine too yeah of course i think though like reading this as a uh, breakup movie it's uh very if if you want to put just that on it, then it's her basically the burning of him as uh, the as he's being carted in. One of the elders is explaining that, like, the reason that they are burning the bear is that the bear represents the like worst, ugliest, darkest parts of them and that they are banishing that back to the recesses of their world to that th- then will creep back in in 90 years. And so to me, it felt like if we're reading this as a breakup movie, then this is her purging herself of him as the worst part of herself and that she is elated by the end of the movie. She's overjoyed in some way because she realizes that it took this outside community to help her purge these worst parts of her life. Yeah. Once again, with the slight downside that she now has to live in a murder cult forever. Sign me up. (laughs) All right. And that was the last we ever heard. (laughs) All right. So thank you so much for coming to read the runes with me, Daniel and Sam. Talk. Of course. (laughs) And uh, yeah, next time there's creepy Swedish Ari Aster action or any kind of Ari Aster action, I hope to have you both back to talk about it. Oh, I'll be here. Thanks, Dana. Thank you, Dana. Our producer today was Daniel Hewitt with help from Merritt Jacob. For Sam Adams and Daniel Schrader, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.